let's share the gory details on exactly how wrong it went. So from each of you guys, what did you put into this project and what was your sunk costs? Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. It was April in 2013 when Ian and I cut a deal with Jesse Lawler to found ValetUp.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we learned from this experience, how we failed, and what we're going to do about it in the future, including what Jesse's new project is that's going to benefit podcasters. So if you're not into software startups and you just want to hear about Jesse's new podcast thing, fast forward towards the end of this episode. But let me take you back to May 1st, 2014. That's when Taylor Pearson, who was the lead of ValleyUp.com, he was the lead project manager and salesperson, wrote us this email. Basically, he was looking to figure out how to get a raise. I quote, I realized I couldn't justify a raise because there was no cash flow. So I started running through some scenarios of taking equity in the company. Once I got out of the frame of working for Valley Up and thinking about working on Valley Up, the opportunity cost became a lot clearer. I realized that even if I successfully negotiated for 50% of the company, it wasn't an attractive option. Wow. So even the lead project person wouldn't want to take over 50% of this company. This episode is going to be about how it went oh so wrong. <laughs> if you'd like to give us your comments about this and share with us your experiences, you can comment on this episode at tropicalmba.com slash valet up. This conversation opens with Jesse sort of laying out the vision. What were we thinking back in Berlin in April 2013? I guess the initial concept was to try to do ticketless valet stuff of, you know, if you have a valet company that's running its logistical operations, that one of the problems, and I didn't know anything about valet coming into this conversation, but one of the problems, as, as it was explained to me, was that there's these little paper tickets that, of course, you know, you receive from the valet when you park your car, and there's apparently some other copies of, like, identical tickets that get matched up with it later, and that's how the valets keep track of the cars, but there's a cost associated with each one of these tickets. It's, you know, a few cents a piece, but if you're a busy valet place over the course of the month, maybe you're dropping a couple of grand per month on buying these esoteric little paper tickets. And if we could come up with a software solution to make these physical paper tickets no longer necessary, then that couple of thousand dollars per month that any given valet stand is putting towards paper tickets, they could instead be putting in our you know, software company's pocket, and thus we should build a software company around it. That was kind of the formation of the idea, I guess. I think Ian and I were in a position, too, where we had this great customer list, which we still have, and we thought this would be something higher value that we could sell to them. I remember Ian and I saying, like, we now sell them atoms. Why don't we sell them bits? <laughs> so. Nice. Wouldn't that be great? The punchline is it, it didn't work out. So, But I'd like to, I guess, start at the beginning if you guys are down. When we both had this great idea, we brought it to Jesse and said, basically, we'd love to have you be the technical co-founder. And I guess from your perspective, Jesse, where were you at and why did you think that was a good idea? 
I was really into it because, you know, I have a company that was doing custom software, still is doing custom software for various customers, but, you know, they come to us, we build it, we sell it, don't have an ongoing revenue stream from that or an equity position in most of the things that we're building. And here was an opportunity to build something that we would sort of own going forward or own a part of it going forward. And that also came with you guys attached with a marketing team that I knew could actually do the marketing. That was something I really didn't have in-house. And it was sort of a nice way for me to, A, build sort of an ongoing revenue stream and and be diversify from sort of what my core business was. Yeah, and in the beginning, when we all came together, I think we, and this is one of the problems, but when we all came together, we all decided, hey, like, let's get into this thing. We see an opportunity here. People are already being successful in the marketplace. We think we have an interesting angle. All that was on the table, and then we decided this can't be any of our main focus because we're all running successful businesses outside of this. So that was fault number one. I don't know if it's too early to to start talking about our faults, but that was definitely fault number one. Yeah, I remember we came up with this agreement in Berlin. You guys remember that? In March 2013, so to set the timeline, we've been kind of at this for a long time. We decided that we would each take 33% equity, and we developed a memorandum of understanding, which we codified some things that we advise against on this show. Like We were like, this is purely going to be an investment. This is all going to be our secondary thing. This thing is like void of a CEO. Eventually, what happened, Ian, is that you had to step in and be the CEO of this thing, yeah? Yeah, I had to definitely have, you know, somewhat of a vision for the product because Jesse was on the back end banging away at the keys, executing. I was kind of on the front end interpreting what I thought was going on in the market. That was really important. And also we had Taylor on board and Taylor was helping us ultimately built the product. Although we didn't have Taylor from day one, right? No, Taylor wasn't on from day one, but he came on a few months in once we realized, you know, what an undertaking this was going to be. And turned out that like Taylor was really good at interpreting the vision and turning it over to you guys, Jesse, on your team. So we're going to talk about what went wrong and what we learned from it. But first, let's share the gory details on exactly how wrong it went. So from each of you guys, what did you put into this project and what was your sunk costs? We were discussing this before the show, and I definitely owe Jesse a couple milkshakes because he's put in a couple more dollars than we have. I think this is embarrassing, but probably for us are around thirty-five plus thousand dollars. I'm going to estimate about fifty thousand on my end, and, and no no milkshakes required, man. It was like it was part of the risk we all knew going in. You know, not everything makes money, but it was a serious financial undertaking for us, and I'd say for us, like one of the biggest losses that we've had in terms of going after something and failing at it. And the costs on both sides were primarily employees. And in terms of revenue, we got to a respectable $1,000 a month, but it was sort of $1,000 the hard way. I would honestly say, like, when I look back on it, the hard costs to me kind of pale in comparison to the opportunity costs, too. It's like my own time isn't included in that at all. I wish I could have my time back. I agree with that. Like hindsight is twenty twenty, and if we all could have seen this coming, obviously we wouldn't have sunk in as much time as we did. But when you're in the thick of it, right? Like you truly believe that this is a great opportunity. It's going to work out. We're going to make a lot of money. You know, it's only afterwards that you think, "Shucks, I wish I had my time back." Right? There was this moment in this story around the time Taylor sent the email that Ian and I realized, and we were on a call separate from Jesse, that everything we thought we were bringing to the project had been wrong. Like, we were supposed to be the guys who knew about the market, 
that understood it, that could sell this. And all of a sudden, it was like sand going through our fingers. We were like, wow, we're not bringing anything to the table anymore. We were wrong about all this stuff. Ian, from your perspective, what were we so wrong about? What I was so wrong about was a lot of things, obviously. Like Jesse said, the first idea that we had was to kind of innovate on the ticket system. I thought that there was a real opportunity there to uh, eliminate that cost for these valet companies. It's a reoccurring cost. And like Jesse said, if you have a large location, it can be a lot every month. And so our first idea was to kind of use these tags, if you will, and have them be reusable. And so I was wrong about that. Companies don't want to use reusable tags. They just want to use the pieces of paper that they've been using for the past 30 years and they will be using until autonomous cars take over, would be my guess. (laughs) So that was the first thing that I was wrong about. The second thing that I was wrong about was how many customers there are. You know, we have a pretty good list of valet companies and I thought, hey, if we can make a tiered product, you know, one that comes in at maybe 59, 159, 259 plus, you know, we're gonna be able to sell to a bunch of these guys. Turns out like the architecture of these guys' locations and the way that their revenue model works makes it so that there really isn't a bottom of the market. It's mostly selling to high-end guys and big valet companies. And honestly, there's 20 of those companies. So I thought we might have, you know, several thousand customers. Turns out you probably only have about 20 to 100 max. I remember there was this call that we were all on with Taylor and we thought we had this customer avatar actually codified. I forget what the avatar's name was. Do you guys remember? It was like Mark or something. Mark is a small business entrepreneur. You know, he lives in St. Louis. He has 20 locations. Here's what those locations are like. And we thought essentially that we were bringing Mark to the table. And Taylor was basically like, Mark's not going to buy our product. And here's all the reasons. And our product is no longer for Mark. And that's really the moment that the sort of the bottom fell out. Also, I think one of the things about SaaS that we were thinking, we were all excited about SaaS and forgetting that this is not just SaaS. It also has like a major hardware component of people who are going to need to buy an iPad and some iPhones and some things like that. And even if we could bring them the actual software at a pretty decent price, they were still going to have a major upfront hardware investment. And that was scary to a lot of people. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jesse, that I forgot about, which is at any given location, if you just have an iPad, you know, you're looking at a hard cost of $500. And upfront, that's hard for these guys to swallow a lot of times because they're passing on the cost of the hotel or wherever their location is. So not only do they have to spend $500, then they have to spend the reoccurring monthly fee. And so I think, you know, like you said, with SaaS, it's like we sit behind our computers all day. Is that we already have our computers. We were forcing these guys to not only download our app and pay us $150 a month, but buy hardware for an unproven piece of software. There were some first movers in the market that had taken the time to sell existing products and educate the market. So, you know, people were starting to get used to buying hardware, but by no means were they very comfortable with it. So in other words, like we realized why our competition was focused on the enterprise and the middle of the market was just not ready to be addressed at the level of infrastructure and the level of costs that our product was requiring. So it was kind of like either we go head on at the enterprise level or nothing. And that was the moment when Ian and I decided, you know, this is just not going to be worth it. Like there's, there's probably a version of this thing that works, but we don't feel like we have the wherewithal to stay involved. We felt like the only fair thing to do was to push our equity chips into Jesse's corner and to help you get a business partner. We felt like the only fair thing to do was to dump this on Jesse's desk and run away as fast as possible <laughs> and apologize. Not at all. Not at all. I, you know, honestly, that's probably one of the things I've sort of been slowly kicking myself on in the past six months is kind of thinking, ah, you know what? I should have just gotten out of this at the same time that Dan and Ian did. That would have been the thing that would have made sense to 
do, but I, I couldn't quite bring myself to you know pull that emotional trigger at the time. But by the time that the end of the year rolled around, it was like, eh, this would have been the right move to make six months ago. Well, I take full responsibility for that because, you know, whatever realization you came to, you know, in the last couple of months, I didn't do a good enough job explaining to you the rationality, you know, why I was getting out or why we were getting out, you know. So I take full responsibility for that. Not necessary, man. I mean, you know, the other perspective is like, okay, so maybe, you know, our original 33% deal for all of us, maybe, you know, we're looking at it in May and we got the the scary email from Taylor. It's like, oh shit, you know, 33% of this company isn't so good. But, you know, if Dan and Ian are disappearing from this and I can take all 100%, maybe there's still a way of pulling this out of the fire and making it a worthwhile thing. And, you know, that, that was the way that I rolled the dice and ultimately decided that that wasn't a good roll of the dice either. But that's not your responsibility. It's like we're all big boys here and nobody's pointing any fingers. Well, let's do a little bit of finger pointing at ourselves. What are the key things that we do differently? And we'll talk about how specifically you're doing this differently in one of your next projects, Jesse. I guess relative to Valley Up, you know, what's the full house? We all learned something in the last 21 minutes. What do you guys feel like are the major takeaways that might benefit other people who want to get into SaaS? Ooh, ooh, I got one. I got one. I think one of the things that should have scared us more was as we kind of like started looking at our first five customers, our first 10 customers, and saw that for each of those customers, we were going to need to make some really kind of specific customizations to what their sort of valet operation needed. The fact that the taco stand that has a valet is a lot different than the hotel that has a valet is a lot different than the you know combined underground parking lot that has a valet. And all of these have very peculiar needs that we were going to need to either do per customer customization, which of course is tough to scale and sucks, or we're going to need to make a product that's so complex that we can have a bunch of configuration settings that the customer can set themselves to handle all these different use cases and also document and explain that so people aren't you know going batty-eyed when they look at the settings page. And I think once we kind of had enough information to realize that was going to be the case and that was the level of complexity that attacking this market required, we should have gotten shit scared and, and we probably didn't. One of the things I think we made a mistake of is it's really easy to think that because, you know, we already know these customers that, you know, it's just going to be a really easy thing to bolt on to our current business. But, you know, one of the things you mentioned, Jesse, is that building valet podiums, designing products and manufacturing them is a completely different way to run a business than understanding the day-to-day logistical sides of valet businesses and building solutions for that side of the business. So when you're going to start a completely new thing, I think you need to consider your level of passion for that. All three of us were explicitly not passionate about that. You know, we said in our agreement that none of us were going to get involved in that. And I think that that was just a mistake. And I actually think I got some emails from listeners who like sensed that when we did earlier podcasts about this project, they sensed it actually, like this is not going to work out. Meanwhile, all three of us are just running towards the flames, tossing money at it. (laughs) I agree with you there, Dan. I don't think that, you know, if you're a manufacturing company, you can't pivot into some SaaS products and whatnot, especially if you have guys like Jesse on your team, makes it really easy to make you look good. But, you know, in terms of like being passionate about the product, absolutely. We all kind of maybe glaze over the on-stage test for sure. Like we thought that we were going to hire somebody to be on stage for us. And that's what I thought. And I don't think that that's a good idea for the future. Yeah, the the tricky thing, like you were getting those emails from listeners saying, hey guys, I don't think this is going to work. And to a certain extent, you need to completely ignore stuff like that when you're going into a new project. It's like, you know, you don't know who to listen to. You kind of have to believe full bore that 
this is going to work and we're going to make it work, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. And then, of course, in retrospect, you know, if something doesn't work out, then you look back at those things like, oh, there are all these warning signs. But on the other hand, the advice that you give people is like, well, you can't listen to the naysayers. There will be warning signs. You got to run through the flags. And so, I mean, I think it's more an art than a science as to how to interpret those, you know, noises from the peanut gallery sometimes. Jesse, you did make an interpretation, which is that you started a new project called Podcast Pop. And I'm pretty curious about it because we're going to become a user. And I don't fully understand the feature set. So I was hoping you could bring us into that. Let's kind of circle back on where you are at. You know, you were on the show probably like a year and a half ago. And a lot of developers really responded to how you're building a distributed software team in Ho Chi Minh City. And people are familiar with your story. And if they're not, we'll link to that on the show notes here. So just give us an update on where you're at and where your business is at and why you felt inspired to start Podcast Pop. Podcast Pop, in a lot of ways, is sort of trying to answer the questions that were brought up as problems, like with Valet Up. The main one, I guess, is the whole level of passion and enthusiasm for the actual you know, market that I'm serving is, you know, I have my own podcast. I do the Smart Drug Smarts podcast. And so last year I started building an app that was sort of the companion app for that podcast. A couple of conversations I had late in the year, one of which was with you, one of which was with one of my employees, a couple of things sort of T-boned together and it made me realize, like, wait a minute, like 75% of the feature set that I'm building for my own app that's specifically for my podcast would be useful to anybody else that has a podcast. And so why don't I, you know, expand this into a software as a service or a platform as a service type offering. So that's kind of what Podcast Pop is. The, the basic idea is we're going to be doing it on iOS first, Android next, but anybody that has a podcast that wants to be able to create an app that reaches their listeners directly and be able to send push notifications to their listeners, let them know when new episodes are out, sort of develop a more sort of exclusive community with their super fans. Podcast Pop is a way to allow them to do that, to send advertisements for what they're hawking on their podcasts, you know, marry an advertisement to an episode if they have an episode that has a specific sponsor. I mean, things like that would be part of the overall feature set. But basically, it's for people that have a podcast, want to have an app, but don't want to go through the pain and expense and time of actually developing an app from the ground up. Will people be able to listen to shows on your app or are they just going to get notifications and then jump over to their whatever they listen to podcasts on? They would definitely be able to listen directly through the app. That's sort of one of the main features. And all the stuff that you're used to on podcast apps, being able to listen at you know 1.25 times speed or you know 1.75 times or all these things will be in it. It would be one podcast per app. So it's kind of, if you're listening to you know 50 podcasts every week and you love them all equally, you're probably going to hate me if all of your top 50 podcasts get a Podcast Pop app because nobody's going to want to download all 50 on their phone. But for people that are kind of like specifically into you know one or two big podcasts and those podcasts decide to do an app and maybe dump some app-specific content that they could drip only to the app listeners, things like that to kind of like draw people in. I kind of look at it a lot the same way as people that have podcasts want to get everybody to sign up to their email list because one of the main problems for podcasters is most people, you know, pick up a podcast through iTunes, they pick it up through Stitcher. And so you see these download numbers accumulating, but you don't really know anything about those people. You don't know who they are, where they live, or have any way of reaching them directly. You just know that there was another download. You don't even know if somebody actually listened to it. If they did listen, you don't know, did they listen two minutes in or did they listen to the whole hour? Any of that sort of stuff. Once the platform is sort of something that is owned by the podcaster because they have their own app, all that analytics is available and the ability to know, maybe not email-wise who that person is, but certainly sending a push notification straight to their phone, which has a much higher open rate than an email that you send anyway. 
all these are, are sort of great ways to be able to reach out to that audience in a much more direct fashion. I think that's a big challenge. Something that we've done an okay job of, Ian, is actually like drawing people back to your site, you know, and getting the conversation going. I think that there's a lot of potential there in terms of letting people know that there's a community behind the words and that they can click through and then they can join it. I got a comment from somebody who was like, they listened to a show like a week after it came out, but they wanted to ask us a question about it or have a conversation with other listeners. And they felt like because it was a week after the show came out that they couldn't engage. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, we're, we're always there. I'm, I'm always commenting on things that we talked about, you know, years ago, months ago, and we're bringing them up on new shows. So I think that adding that element of like engagement, I think is something that as a podcast host is really important for me. Jesse, are you familiar with the Serial podcast? Yeah, yeah. I, I got turned on to it a little bit late, I think. Other people were talking about it for a while before I was like, all right, I'll see what the thing's all about. But yeah, I, I listened to the whole thing in like a, one weekend. I just went through and listened to all of them and loved it. Yeah, super infectious. And people around me are listening to it. And I think about engagement not, you know, my girlfriend was listening to it and she was like obsessed with going online and doing research and like looking around and you know looking at maps and all this stuff. And it will be interesting with podcast pop to see if you can reach that kind of engagement. I think that that serial podcast is like a really great example of, you know, an interesting series that can be so much more than a podcast, you know, that can bring you to the internet and force you to engage or bring you to an app. Inspire you. Yeah. Podcast pop is not an app so much as just a platform for podcasters to be able to make their own apps. And so it's really going to be just trying to add to the tool set that's available to podcasters of how they can engage their audience, how they can you know get a little bit of a closer relationship, get more more ways to communicate with them and really sort of separate the casual listener from the super fan. You guys got any parting shots? Anything you want to say before we get off the episode? Yeah, I'd like to say that we're all still here and that we're all still plugging along, you know? Some definitely some bruised egos in this endeavor that we were into together, but you still have hey. an ego? Mine is a bloody pulp. I fully expect complete and utter disaster every time we do something. I just have zero pride left. It's over, man. What is it that Winston Churchill said that success is the ability to go from one disaster to the next with no loss of enthusiasm? Right. I feel like we all share that together. So maybe we're on the right path. If not with that app, it just in general. Cool. Well, thank you guys for having me on for the wrap up here. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.